0: Take out again your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John in chapter 8. And we'll be reading verses 12 through 30. John chapter 8, starting in verse 12. Again, this is God's holy, inspired, and inert an word. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I come from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For if it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written, that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? And Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. The grass withers, the flower falls, the word of our God remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray. Gracious God in heaven, we thank you for this reading of your word. We thank you that as Jesus declares that he is the light of the world, that he has enlightened us. We pray, O God, that we may understand this passage, that we may be able to apply it, that we may give glory to our Savior Jesus. Help us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what we are looking at today is really a continuation of the narrative which we had looked at two weeks ago, ending in John chapter 7 and verse 52. In that context, Jesus had stood up on the last day of the Feast of Booths, and he, made, he makes two key pronouncements, pronouncements which lead to much discussion and debate. The first we looked at a couple weeks ago in John chapter 7 and verse 38. Jesus cries out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow living water. Now, that's actually the last time that he has spoken in the narrative. There's a lot of discussion among the Jews, among the Pharisees, over what he means by these things. Uh, And assuming that uh, chapter 7, verse 53, through verse 8, 11, are not part of the original, Jesus doesn't speak again in the context until verse 12. And here, Jesus connects himself... Um, to the water-pouring... Well, he had in the, in the first one, he had connected himself to the water-pouring ceremony. He provides living water to the thirsty. He provides eternal life. And now we come to the second pronouncement, the second statement which Jesus makes here in verse 12. Now, for a little bit more of the context, in the course of the Feast of Booths, uh, the Jewish Mishnah describes the celebration as having four huge lamps in the, temple court, the temple's court of women, and these were, were lighted. And it was said that the men would dance through the night holding torches and singing songs of praise while the Levitical mu- musicians played. Now some sources attest to these celebrations having gone, gone throughout the night. And throughout each night of the feast it would go throughout the night and that the glow from the temple was seen throughout all of Jerusalem. And having that now as a backdrop. You, know, you have this temple just, just flooding the whole city with light. Have that in the back of your mind. Is it, because it's in that context now that Jesus speaks to the crowd gathering there when he says this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have a light of life. Now again, the Feast of Booths is a celebration which remembers the wilderness wanderings of the children of Israel. The Lord had provided water from the rock and had led the people by a pillar of fire at night. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is actually clearly connecting himself to, in both of these sayings that he provides living water and that he is the light of the world. And so here we find in the second, this is really the second of the I am statements of John's gospel. And of course, each of these are significant, these I am statements. This is, I am is how God had disclosed himself. Remember to Moses, you know, who do I say said, tell him I am. This is the self-existent one. The great I am. The one who is. Now, previously, Jesus had said in John chapter 6 that he was the bread of life. He said, I am the bread of life. In addition, we have learned from the prologue that the incarnate word was the light of, Of men, John 1 4. So, in in light, of course, has many Old Testament allusions. Uh, The glory of the Lord, uh, the light of creation, the the light which led the people to the promised land and protected them, that that pillar of fire. Uh, Psalm 27 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Or Psalm 119, 105. Very familiar to most of you, I'm sure. The word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The prophet Isaiah tells of a servant of the Lord who would be raised up to be a light to the nations. That he would come and he would bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Isaiah 42, I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. We read that for our Old Testament reading. And then again in Isaiah 49, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And so, when Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He is making direct reference to the promises of God. As we've already seen in John's Gospel, uh, he's already clearly. It's already clear that the the light of God has dawned in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the one that the Scriptures had promised was to come. And so, as the light of the world, Jesus is the promised one. He's the one who would rescue His people. He's the one who would set the captives free. He is the one who would bring light to those dwelling in darkness. <laughs> he is. Very God incarnate. He is the Son of God and the Son of man. Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah of God. Jesus is the light of the world, and the light of the world is Jesus. He himself, as a person, is that light which shines, illuminating not only the temple grounds, right? Think again, that picture is in the back of your mind still, right? You have the temple and the grand light which is flowing throughout the city. Jesus illuminates the world. Not of the physical light, though, a spiritual light. The light of the gospel. The good news that God has come unto the scene to fulfill all that He had promised to save His people, to set them free. All those who trust and rest in Him can bask in the glory of of God's glorious light in Jesus Christ. As the light, Christ proclaims wisdom to the ignorant. He proclaims holiness to the impure. He calls those who are in deep despair to great glad- gladness and joy. He gives sight to the blind. He sets at liberty the oppressed. Jesus not only proclaims these blessings, but to all those who, by his sovereign grace, he draws. He imparts them to them. By faith, you, dear Christian, brother and sister, are partakers of these great spiritual blessings. You, dear ones, have been set free. You have been made holy in Christ that you no longer need fear, even death. For your place has been secured by the very precious blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. In whose light you stand, the incarnate Word, who is a lamp unto your feet and a light to your path. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus is the light of the world. And that reality, though, has an immediate consequence. One must follow Him. Those who follow Him. But which is, by the way, the only sensible thing to do if he is in type, the pillar of fire by night, setting the course through the wilderness. That's the picture, right? God, God expected, uh, as, the, as the pillar of fire would, would, you know, the people were to follow that pillar of fire through the wilderness. I mean, it, what happens if you didn't follow the pillar of fire? You'd be in darkness. You'd be in darkness. And so there's an immediate consequence. One must follow Jesus. Because to not follow him would be to be in darkness. That's the implication. But for those who do follow him, they are in his light. Those who follow Jesus, the light of the world, will not find themselves in darkness, but have the light of life. You see, Jesus, the object of our faith, is the light who brings life. This, of course, has been an ongoing theme. Uh, We've seen this throughout John's Gospel. When we trust and rest in Jesus Christ, He produces life. We are new creatures in Him. We are spiritually transformed by faith, which is a gift from God. Now, Jesus has spoken here but this is really all that's said directly on the subject. Jesus declares that he is the light of the world. But from here on, the narrative turns on the Pharisees questioning his authority to make such a statement. What comes after, though, is, is not unrelated to the theme which Jesus has brought up. The one who is of light is also the one who speaks only the truth. And so we see, starting in verse 13, that the Pharisees challenged Jesus. And they they try to use his own words, which he had spoken earlier in John chapter 5, in verse 31, they try to use his words against him. In in John 5, he says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. And so here's their challenge. They say, you are bearing witness about yourself. Thus, your testimony is not true. Now, certainly in the law of Moses... Criminal proceedings required multiple testimonies. But they have clearly misunderstood Jesus' early point. Jesus is not saying that his single testimony by itself makes his assertions about himself untrue. Just because there's only one person testifying doesn't change the truthfulness of the situation. This is why we ought not to dismiss someone just because they're the only witness who's come forward. However, if the burden of establishing fact is dependent solely on one person's self-testimony, then it cannot be determined to be true. It would remain unproven, not disproven though. Understand the difference. It would be unproven. In other words, there's no way to validate the claims in order to validate a claim, it's necessary for others to testify as well. And this is what Jesus had presented back in chapter 5. Here, though, Jesus responds in verse 14 this way. He says, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I come from, or I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. And so here, here is Jesus Um, using some amount of patience. Going over the same ground that he has already gone over in the past. And yet here he uses slightly different wording. So grateful, by the way, that Jesus is patient. I wouldn't be as patient as Jesus is, having to say the same thing over and over again. But here he is. He's being very patient. Even if he's the sole witness to the facts... This doesn't change the truthfulness of the claim. You see, something is true because it's true. Not because there are a multitude of witnesses who say it's true. But it is by a multitude of witnesses that a truth claim can be validated. So you can see the differences, hopefully. This, dear friends, is an important point to bear in mind when any accusations are made, any time. And, you know, you don't have to spend very much time online, you know, on what used to be called Twitter or Facebook to see all sorts of accusations that people make. They, they tend to come and go, even in the, in the Christian world. And um, just because there's one person making it doesn't mean it's untrue. Now, it doesn't mean it's true either. It just means we don't know. We don't have enough facts. So we should bear these things in mind. Jesus is testifying to the truth. And he's uniquely able to do this because of his origin and direction. You see, Jesus knows where he came from. From the Father. He knows where he is going. Back to the Father. You see, Jesus has a heavenly Origin, Not in the sense of having a beginning, for the Son of God is eternal, but in terms of his being outside of creation. He, is, he has a heavenly origin in that sense. Now, Jesus' opponents don't know these things. Jesus knows himself, not only in the immediate or reflective sense, but he knows himself completely. He knows the facts concerning himself in ways that you and I don't even know about our own selves. And so when Jesus proclaims that he is the light of the world, this is based on his perfect self-consciousness, which the men challenging him cannot possibly comprehend. Soon enough, Jesus will point out again that even these claims that you're making, these are not independent claims, but are in perfect conformity to the will and witness of the Father. And so Jesus goes on. He says, This, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Now, what does this mean? What does Jesus mean by this? In assessing Jesus, the Jewish leaders were using human standards. That is, they were using standards according to the flesh. Uh, This isn't simply judging by appearances, which is bad enough but judging according to the standards of the fallen human condition. In other words, judging as fallen men living in a fallen world without the transforming insights of the Holy Spirit. This is not how Jesus assesses humanity. He does not judge according to the standards of fallen humanity because he is not among fallen men. He was not born by ordinary generation like you and I. Also, I should point out that Jesus is not here speaking of judgment in the judicial sense, but in the assessment sense. Jesus does not judge anyone in the same manner as his opponents judge. It's not that he doesn't judge. In fact, he does judge. And his judgment is true. It's always true. In that, that's the point. He's the lie of the world, right? All of his statements would be true. And so Jesus' purpose, though, is to save, not to condemn. And yet, his presence guarantees that mankind will be divided around him, many judging him. Right? And isn't that the case today? Some assess Jesus as, you know, crazy or something, right? A lunatic. Others understand by the Holy Spirit that he's Lord. Right? But that's, uh, he, you know, we, but Jesus isn't, isn't assessing the situation the same way that you and I would. Indeed, Jesus does judge and has the unique authority to do so because he is the Son of Man. And even, even still, apart from his eschatological judgment, you know, this is, you know, speaking about his judgment at the end of all things, if Jesus were to appraise a person or a situation, his judgment would inevitably be proven to be correct. In fact, the word Alatheus is used. True. It's always true. It's right. Consider the, the story we looked at last week. You know, the woman caught in adultery. This is a perfect illustration of this point. Jesus could measure any situation, could understand rightly what is going on. And this is because he does not stand alone in his judgment, but with the Father who sent him. Jesus judges according to what he hears from the Father, and so his judgment is always right. And this is on account of his special relationship that the Son has with the Father. And because of this, the formal conditions of the law are met. Verse 17, and Jesus says, In your law it is written, that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. And so there's your two witnesses. The formal conditions of the law are fulfilled. The Father and the Son are in perfect agreement with one another. They both bear witness. Which is, again, in accordance with the law. Now, the Jews understood the law on this point. They understood the need for two witnesses. And so Jesus concludes, I am the one who bears witness about myself. And the Father who sent me bears witness about me. And so here we have two reliable witnesses. The Father and the Son. Jesus bears witness concerning himself. And the Father bears witness about him. Now, the Father's witness can be most directly seen at the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John saw this. And it would have been seen also at the Lord's baptism, which many of the disciples witnessed. Now, the Pharisees' response to this, however, was the question, asked this question, Where's your Father? Where's your Father? See, they've already rejected the witness of the Son, and now they wanted to know where his Father was, presumably so that they could reject his witness too. Of course, they're only thinking in human terms, right? Well, where is your Father, Jesus? And so Jesus responds this way. You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, then you would know my Father also. You see, these teachers of Israel—they're engaged in a most dangerous game, which is played among men. They're hardening their hearts against God. Such may well result in their total blindness, their continued ignorance, and their eternal lostness. They do not know the Son, because if they did, that they would know the Father. They wouldn't even have to ask that question. Well, where's your father? They would know the Father. But the truth is, they don't know either one. They don't know either one. Indeed, they are lost. They are dead in their sins. And so John finishes off this exchange by providing the setting. He says, these words were spoken in the treasury as he taught in the temple. This is the place uh, where the offerings were put. Presumably, uh, these are the so-called shofar chests. They're called this because of their shape. Uh, They were in the shape of a shofar or the trumpet. Uh, We're not told explicitly anywhere where these were kept. But most commentators seem to think they were found in the court of women where this exchange was taking place. So Jesus was, as we've said before, teaching in the temple. This is a public place. It was also near where the Sanhedrin met. And yet, we see this, no one arrested him because his time had not yet come. John again adds that little note uh, pointing to the sovereignty of God. The time had not yet come. No one could lay hands on him because his time had not come. The Lord is providentially in control of the time when Jesus would be arrested, but that time had not yet come. And so again, Jesus speaks, verse 21. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Now, the again, like in verse 12, indicates something of a pause, and yet there is understood to be a continued dialogue between Jesus and those who are in opposition to him. Now, Jesus indicates again that he is going away. That is, to the Father. He's speaking of his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And where he is going, they cannot come, though they will seek him. Now, it's unlikely that they would be seeking Jesus personally. That's not what is being said here. It's not that they're like, oh, where did that Jesus fellow go? We, we should try to find him. That's, that's not what he's saying. Rather, they will be seeking for the Messiah, right? He will have come and gone, they will have put him to death, and they're like, you know, we're waiting for the Messiah still. I mean, in fact, isn't that what a lot of Jews are waiting for? They're still waiting for the Messiah to come? Messiah's already come. But they're seeking him. They will be seeking the Christ in concept, but they will have missed him, because they will have already murdered him. And so their seek, in their seeking, they will fail to find him because they were, what they were looking for. They will fail to look, find what they were looking for and thus they will die in their sins. They will not find the Messiah. Well, they, they will seek for him. They will seek for someone other than Jesus. A Messiah other than Jesus. Therefore, where Jesus is going, these lost souls cannot come. They will not be granted entrance into the kingdom of God because they will have looked past and even sought to destroy the very one that they were to have found. The one who would save them from their sins. Now, this is largely a repetition of things that Jesus has already said. And yet the difference now is the tone of warning that Jesus gives. Jesus warns them of the danger that they're in. That they will die in their sins. There's a danger in not following Christ. We should understand that. And here again, there is confusion, though, as what Jesus means. Verse thirty-two or twenty-two, rather. Uh, the Jews, some of the Jews, said, "Will he kill himself?" As he says, "Where I'm going, cannot come." And so here you have in the crowd some skeptical people. they, they cannot fathom what Jesus means. I right? they they still don't understand what he's talking about. And they, they wonder, well, some, some of them wondered, well, was he going to go to the Gentiles here? They wonder, you know, is he going to kill himself? But again, Jesus cuts right straight to the heart of the matter. Verse 32, or verse 23, rather, sorry, he says, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you. That you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. He points to the the reason they don't understand. They haven't been born from above. They're from below. He is from above. Now in saying this, Jesus isn't referring to hell or the underworld. But simply to this world. Right? They're fleshly. They're thinking in earthly terms. They cannot, they cannot understand because of this. Jesus, though, is not from this world. And again, he warns them of their need. They need to believe. They need to place their faith in him. They must believe that he is the Christ or they will die in their sin. It's very plain. Here, the critics of Jesus don't believe, do they? They are blind. They are dead in their trespasses and sins and unless they are born from above they cannot see the kingdom of God so here Jesus gives a conditional clause which provides the proper object of their faith they must believe in him to have eternal life in other words you can't just believe in this concept of Messiah like some Messiah is going to save you no Jesus himself properly speaking Jesus is the object of our faith we believe in him our trust is in Him for eternal life. Otherwise, they will die in their sins. And what Jesus is here really still hinting at, it will become very clear in verse 58 later on. And notice, too, the use of the phrase, I am. He says, I am from above. I am not of this world. Unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Again, Jesus is making claims of divinity. But at this point, his opponents don't really get it. So they're, they're still asking, well, who are you? Evidently, they haven't been listening. And Jesus, as he expresses, has been telling them these things from the beginning. I, I told you, he says, from the beginning, I told you. Now, there's, there's two senses to this. His telling them from the beginning. In one sense, Jesus has been telling them this from the beginning of his public ministry. And you'll notice that he has been going over the same ground with these these opponents over and over again. He's been answering a lot of the same questions over and over again, very patiently, but but, but forcefully. And Jesus has consistently told them of a relationship between himself and the Father. But there is another sense that he has been telling them this from the beginning. Jesus has been telling them this from the beginning of time. In other words, the Lord has revealed himself as Yahweh, the great I Am. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Jesus has been revealing himself from the very beginning of time. Through the created things, through all of the covenant promises of God. From the beginning, then is exactly that. From the very beginning. And so for them to ask, Who are you? Who are you? Is, is sort of rich with irony. Their their ignorance of Christ, in their ignorance of Christ, they're showing that they don't even know the Father. They don't even know the their own the promises of their own scriptures. They don't actually know God at all. It's a very sad irony, isn't it? It's a sad irony to know about the truth and yet not actually know the truth and trust in the truth. Now, there's much more the Lord could say here. He says as much, much more to be said, much more uh, that He could assess about their character, right? But as He points out in verse 26, He who sent Him is true, and He declares the world. That which he has heard from him. See, what his, what his accusers don't understand still is that Jesus is speaking of the Father. He is speaking about his relationship to the Father. He's been revealing the Father to them. The, the very ones they think they know, they don't actually know. Jesus has actually been speaking to them about the Father. The Father had sent the Son, and the Son speaks that which was given to him by the Father. And all that is said from the Father is true, because everything that comes from God is true. God is truth. You see, complete spiritual blindness had gripped these men in such a way that they did not recognize the one who was sent from the Father. Because in truth, they didn't know the Father either. That's sad. And so when they so when will they see them? When, when, when will they be able to know these things? When will the full disclosure of who is who Jesus is take place? When will his glory be revealed? Well, Jesus says when the Son of Man is lifted up. When Jesus is lifted up on the cross he is lifted up to the Father and he will return again to the Father in glory enjoying that which he had with the Father from the beginning. And that event his being lifted up that will be brought about by his enemies. By the very men he's even speaking with. When he is lifted up in that manner then they will know who he is and that he speaks and does that which proceeds from the Father. At the cross, both the believer and the unbeliever will unambiguously know. Now, this doesn't mean that all the enemies of Christ will be converted. The, The knowledge by itself is not what saves. They must have faith. In other words, it's not just knowing about true things. It's faith. It's belief. It's trusting and resting in. But they will know the truth. In fact, they'll know the truth and try to hide the truth, won't they? The teaching of the cross and the cross itself are the very will of God, the Father. And Jesus always does that which pleases the Father. It was the will of the Father that the Son die for the sins of His people. That His blood be shed so that many might be saved. That full payment may be made on their behalf. And Jesus always and completely submits to the will of the Father. So what's the result of Jesus' teaching? As Jesus teaches here, and he, and he says these things, that he is the light of the world, he, he explains his relationship to the Father, he gives the warning of, of the need for believing in, in himself as the object of their faith. What was the response? Well, many believed. Many believed. It doesn't say all believed, but many did. Now, it may be that not everyone is converted in that moment, but there were many who were. And so this this is encouraging, right? There are some who were born from above or born again. The Spirit moved in their hearts. They believed. They trusted and rested in Christ. It was not that they had seen with their eyes, for the knowing of the lifting up of the Son was yet in the future, and yet they believed and were saved. Now remember this is a public place and crowds of people no doubt were witnessing this debate between Jesus and these these Jewish authorities, these Pharisees and scribes and there were some who walked away still dead in their their sins. They heard these things and they they rejected it. They didn't believe. And there were others who who did believe, who were saved and then maybe there's others who heard these things maybe not outwardly rejecting them but they didn't necessarily walk away with faith. But This is how it is with the public proclamation of the gospel, isn't it? Different people can hear the same message and come to very different conclusions. So what kind of faith is this, we might wonder, when it says they believe? Well, John doesn't actually make it very clear to us here. We know already that there were some who expressed faith earlier, which turned out to be spurious, right? There were some who who expressed some sort of belief, but then it turns out, really, they liked Jesus for what he had to offer them, so, what was the nature of this faith? I don't know. <laughs> I can only tell you what it says, right? There were many who believed. Some were maybe, no doubt, there were some who were true believers, and no doubt there were some who were false believers. Once we consider again, the larger context of this passage, the lighting ceremony, in the temple, the the. the, the candles and, the, and the, the bright light would shine throughout the city the whole temple complex being a glow through this, throughout this festival but Jesus is the light of the world and his light shines brighter still than the temple did illuminating the hearts of all those who trust and rest in him and the truth of this becomes obvious at the cross for at the cross, Jesus is lifted up as a sacrifice before the Father. And it was there that our ransom price has been paid. That the captives are set free. And God rescues us. And Even as He had rescued Israel from bondage in Egypt, we have been rescued from bondage to sin. What was not obvious to its opponents... John wants to ensure it's obvious to his readers, to you and I, that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, that he is the light of the world, and that when he is lifted up in glory, all will know who he is. And those who refuse him will die in their sins, having to pay the penalty for themselves. And so what we really really see here today is both a warning and a comfort. It's both a warning and a comfort. For the unbeliever, there is a warning. Which then ought to encourage us in our evangelism, right? I mean, there are unbelievers in this town who are dying in their sins. They need to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. And are ignorant of the fact they need the light of the world, Jesus Christ. The warning then is, is that they would die in their sins. They, in, in fact, they have death to fear, don't they? But here's the comfort. The comfort is that we don't do anything to earn our salvation. That Jesus has paid it all. All to Him I owe. This is a comfort to us. That we, we trust and rest in Christ whose finished work at the cross has fully paid for our sin. That He is a light of the world, that by by His Word and Spirit, we have been enlightened, that we can follow Him as He lights our path. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, trust and rest in your Savior Jesus. Let's pray together. Father in Heaven, we thank You for Your Word. We thank you that Jesus is the light of the world. That as we follow him, we no longer walk in darkness. But we have the light of life. That in him we have true life, eternal life. We're thankful, O God, for the salvation that that you have given to us. The gift of God. We pray that we may be those who walk diligently by your spirit exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit. May we not be those who return to the ways of unbelief, who live as if we were still unbelievers. Help us to grow in righteousness and holiness, desiring to to be wholehearted in our devotion to you. Help us to put to to death sin which remains in us. But oh, we are so grateful that you have freed us that we are no longer in darkness. And God, we do pray that as we consider the warnings of the Scripture that there may be some today, right now, who are not believers, who do not know Christ Jesus. May they hear these warnings. May your Spirit be at work in their hearts that they would turn and be renewed and refreshed. They would be set free from the bondage that they live in. And may we as your people be encouraged to share the hope that's within us with patience and meekness. May we be those who delight so much in our Savior that we want to tell all the world. And help us as we seek to make disciples of the nations. Thank you, O God. And we pray, pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.